What on earth do you desire? What on earth do you want? Better house? Bigger car? Or if you're like me, a smaller car? A Maserati would be nice. Better job? Bigger income? Better marriage? Better spouse? Better parents? Better kids? What is it? Higher social position? What on earth do you desire besides God? Stop. In your mind, do not give the pious answer that you know you're supposed to give. But in your mind, in the presence of God, name it. And in your mind's eye, picture it. And own it as your desire. Now repent. You know that that house you want belongs to somebody else. There's somebody else driving my Maserati right up to the erected on the corner. You've heard that story before. Somebody else's job is the one you really want. Someone else's income. All those other things. They belong to someone else. And, and you're desiring of them. What is that called? Repent. Repent. What you're actually doing is calling into question God's goodness to you. Before you beat yourself up too bad, you're in good company. You're not, you're not at all alone. I was in my study at home. That's the room that nobody goes into because everything that was in the storage unit five years ago now lives in that room and is being sorted through and, and gotten rid of uh, all too slowly. But there sits my recliner and a stack of books beside it. And I sat down there to begin work on a sermon from Psalm 73. On the top of the stack was a paperback book that I read years ago. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by the old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. Wonderful book, you should read it. And I picked up The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I opened it 
and, and it just kind of fell open because there was there were some papers marking a place there. And there were five tickets. Three of them were Rockefeller tickets. Two were Bob tickets. <laughs> and I breathed like that. And I confessed. And I remember when I was buying those tickets, not those immediate ones, but they were in that time period. And I remembered how it was I went about buying them. The Powerball was a dollar then, and the latte was a dollar. Twice a week I'd take two dollars and have my pockets. And I would leave him there, and would leave the place kind of feeling a little bit, you know, ill at ease. But then I'd get in my car and I'd say, you know, it pleases the Lord. <laughs> that one of these babies hits. And it's particularly if it's his power. Here's what I'm going to do. And at the time, we had just begun the earnest search for property for a church building. And so I mentioned, I'll write a check for the property of the And I felt good. And I did that, I mean, it was about, a, I don't know, six months or a year. I did that pretty much regularly every week. Except, well, if y'all seen St. George's over there, the new building, um, that's sort of what I had in mind in the beginning. <laughs> but the longer we went, <laughs> the smaller the building got. <laughs> And there was this question that was never in words. I never heard the words. I, never, I don't even know that I thought the words. I felt them. Okay. It was a $20 million building. I'll write the check. But here's what was, it was an impression more than anything else. Parker, what are you going to do with the rest of the money? Where's that going to go? And after a while, I quit buying tickets and said, well, I just got to buy the church on their own, you know. <laughs> and I'll put in my, you know, my little bit. And, uh, and so here we are. And that's how we wound up here. But, Asaph was kind of struggling with the same sorts of things, you know. He's living in this world. And these people are prospering, and, and he's not, and he's not to the level he would like to. And he saw the people who, he's, who were prospering, and it's the ones he saw, were the arrogant and wicked. And he wasn't arrogant, and he wasn't wicked, but neither was he prospering. And, and he had to work through that. This whole idea of their prospering and his not. 
And Psalm 73 is the account of that wrestling match of Asaph with what he saw. And he begins the, the whole account at the end, actually. He knew the maxim, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here's a parenthetical uh, observation. Pure in heart there does have something to do with morality, but it, it's more having to do with being wholehearted towards God. Uh, Derek Kidner say, says it means someone who is totally committed to God. It, it is our undivided, unmixed, uh, unadulterated heart given to God and given over to Him. And certainly morality is part of that, but it goes far beyond that. So he knows the maxim, but knowing something and believing it are two different things, aren't they? And he was struggling. He was starting to doubt the maxim. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Another parenthesis. And that doesn't mean that all the wicked and arrogant people were prospering. Nor does that mean that all those who were prospering were arrogant and wicked. It, it, it didn't mean that those who aren't arrogant and those who aren't wicked don't prosper. But it was what he saw. He was struggling because he was living by sight rather than by faith. And, you know, Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians 5. And what he saw when he looked was beginning to make, him ship, to make, beginning to make shipwreck of his faith. We all do it, don't we? You and I tend to interpret things that we see. We, we, there's nothing I don't believe that you and I see that is just in a vacuum, just neutral. We're coming to it with presuppositions. We're coming to it from different positions. We, you know, whatever position, political, whatever. We look at things and we see them and you look at them and you see it one way. I look at it. I see it a different way. Somebody else comes up and sees it differently. And we tend to look like at things as Asaph was looking at. Blinders, you know. I, I'm going to look over here, and, I'm, and, and then I'm going to look over there and, and filter out things. We miss things. So Asaph looked around him, and all he saw through his blinders was that the people who were arrogant and wicked were a whole lot better off than he was. Here's an off-the-wall question. I'm just, just coming in from left field. What do you see when you look around you? Do, do you see people 
much less better than you are and struggle? Or do you see people who are doing a good bit better than you and have more than you have? What do you see? What are your particular blinders? And Asaph was looking. He saw everyone who was doing better than he was and was eating at him. Looking through his blinders, this is what he saw, verse 4. For they, the arrogant and the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And in the height of their arrogance, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And then in verse 12, he sums the whole thing up. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now that's a misperception. It's not really true. It's true in certain ways. But a lot of times, the wicked are worse off than you are. That's what he saw through his lenses with his blinders on. That's what he saw. And he came to a conclusion that he couldn't live with. On the one hand, there's this. God is good to Israel, to those who are wholeheartedly committed to him, pure in heart. These people who don't have anything to do with him, who mock him and belittle him, turn their back on him, curse him, and harm his people, are fat. They're doing well. And I'm sitting here in the middle, struggling with this, starving to death, suffering. What do you say when you come to that point? What's the use? And that's where Asaph was. What's the use? It's not worth the effort. How many times have you said that? Maybe you didn't have the nerve to say it. How many times have you felt it? Thought about it. I remember I, I, I took a pay cut when I left seminary. I had the most unusual seminary experience ever. I served a church and I had a couple of grants and I, had a, I did PR work for the seminary and I graduated seminary and it was 12 years later that I was making as much as I was in seminary as a seminary student. Uh, yeah, in fact, 
the guy that kind of looked after my finances and kept shaking his head and congratulated me when he came around for his yearly visit and said, you know, Margaret, you just started making as much as you did in seminary. Of course, we were classmates in seminary. We were friends in seminary. He knew the whole, whole story. So I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Been there about three years. And the church was not prospering. Uh, it was just struggle after struggle after struggle. And they were paying us more than they could afford, but we couldn't afford to live on what they were paying us. And so we were... We were <laughs> But we had resources, yeah. So we sold our wedding silver, place setting by place setting, sometimes piece by piece, but you could buy place setting. Fortunately, we had 16 place settings. It got us through about half a year, uh, making up the difference. Silver and gold were, you know, at top uh, dollar. Uh, we have no classrooms. I have a college classroom because I had lost it, and 10 years later it showed up. Our high school classrooms, fraternity pens, you know, whatever. Uh, anything that had any precious metal content, silver service, all that way, you know, during the course of that year or so. And, and finally, it just got to be a burden. And I went down to my study in the basement and sat down at the typewriter, put a clean piece of paper in it. This was a long time ago. <laughs> it, it was electric. It was electric. <laughs> put, the, you know, put the paper in, and I said, okay. I know 12 places I can send this resume and 10 of them will hire me based on my past experience. And I prepared to type my resume and, and couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I was at a point where what's the use? It's not worth the effort. And as I tried to do it, I would be violating every call, everything sacred if I went back to my old work. Not my old work, but just in sales. But it paid a whole lot better in preaching. And I wasn't better too. And I had weekends off and just a lot of advantages to it. I, I couldn't type it. I sat there, I don't know how long. Well, that's sort of where, that's sort of where Asaph was. He's ready to throw in the towel. But he can't. But he can't. He would if he could. And, and that very thought of giving up, I, I think, did the exact same thing to him as it did to me. It shocked him. It shocked him when he realized where he had come to. And it shocked him out of his despair. <laughs> If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 15. He remembered the fellowship. He remembered the community of the saints. He remembered the body. He remembered God's call upon him. He remembered, if you will, the Old Testament version of the gospel, this, this covenant that God graciously had made with his people in Abraham. but he still couldn't resolve the issue. He couldn't hang it up. Badly as he wanted to. He couldn't walk away from God. And 
Yet he couldn't resolve the issue. He couldn't reconcile the maxim with what he saw. Well, if God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, why is this going on? And why is this not happening where I am? Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just can't bring it together. Which brings us to the question of the morning. So, what do you do when you can't resolve what you believe or what you think you believe with what you see? What do you do? Did you hear Josh last week? He told you what to do. Same thing Asaph says. You go to church. Come and sit here. You, you go to church. You gather together with other like people going through like things. Verse 16, again, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. There you get a new perspective, new insight. Here, Lord willing, you lose your blinders. You look up. You see the cross. You see the suffering that occurred on that cross in your place for you. You have something to reevaluate your sufferings and pains and trials and all the other things here in this life on this earth. And you hear the word of God. And you join together with others to sing songs and hymns and psalms of praise. And you pray. And you see things now as they are. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awaits, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice something about that. Something happens in that experience. Quit talking to himself began talking to God. You see it? His audience changed. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall. You rouse yourself. You despise them. You, Lord. And and in that you confess that you had it wrong. And you repent of the sin that made you see it wrongly. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast, like an animal. 
toward you. And you fall on your face before God and you. You admit your sin. Now while you're going through this whole process from verse 1 to verse whatever, 20 whatever, wherever I wound up, 22, what's God doing? Here you are, you're struggling with your doubts, with your, your faith, with your fears, with your circumstances. What's God doing? Where is He? He's right there. So you can say, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. It's not God speaking to Him, that's Him speaking to Him. Lord, I'm with you. You hold my hand. My right hand. I remember... You know, not much I remember from a kid, but I remember walking with my dad. Didn't cross the street without daddy taking your hand and crossing the street. Go in the department store. There were no malls. (laughs) Uh, You go to D.H. Holmes and Maison Blanche on Canal Street. Daddy holding my hand because there are a lot of people in there and I could wander off. I can remember walking through the woods. Daddy holding my hand. And then I grew up. I was holding hands. I was watching my son hold his son's hand yesterday as we walked around his place in the Now I hold grandchildren's hands. Somebody takes both hands to hold grandchildren's hands. God's there. He's holding your hand. He's walking you through it. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He's holding tight. It's not that I'm holding his hand. It wasn't that I was holding my daddy's hand. He's holding mine. They were walking together. David said, He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For one single reason, for you are with me. He's guiding you. You guide me with your counsel, as I said, by His Word, by His Spirit, by His providence. And ultimately, he's leading you to himself. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. On the words of David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. That's a poor translation, actually. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How does that 
house with now. That better house. That better car. Better job. Bigger income. Etc. 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 When you put them beside God. Those things aren't wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Those, those things aren't wrong. But what place do they hold in your life? What are they dictating to you? So Asaph repented. And he testified of his newly restored faith. Maybe my favorite verse in all of scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength, literally the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's fine sentiments, beautiful sentiments. Are they so for you? Are they really your sentiments? Is he Is he your refuge this morning? Your rock? Your hiding place? Will you make him your refuge? Jesus Christ is making you an offer this morning. Free offer. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Asaph got to the end of the wrestling match, and he made God his refuge. And he wound up right where he had begun. Surely, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Actually, having had his doubts about it, I think initially what he said was simply, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, why is this happening to me? And the wrestling began. And having had his doubts about it, and then having those doubts assuaged, he reaffirmed it more strongly 
when he sat down to write the song. Truly, truly, God is good to Israel and those who are wholeheartedly committed to him. You can say that too. When your heart is only his.